0: My blood's red as any man's. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And this time, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to talk about Conan 3, a.k.a. Call the Conqueror.
1: A.k.a. Conan 4, if you count Red Sonia. But what if
0: we don't?
1: Well then, Conan 3 it is. <laughs> now, I don't know that people really
0: are aware of... ...of the fact that the 1997 Kevin Sorbo film, Call the Conqueror... ...exists. (laughs) Yes, but also that it was at one point in time going to be a third Conan film.
1: Yeah, I mean the source material is there. Call the Conqueror, or Call, is another Robert E. Howard character. And apparently Schwarzenegger did not want to do another Conan movie at the time... And Kevin Sorbo did not want to do a character that someone else had done. <laughs> so along comes Call the Conqueror. Along comes uh, the remnants, the tattered remnants of a Conan 3 script. And voila.
0: Yeah, because originally, right after Destroyer, they wanted to roll. The De Corporation, Corporation uh, wanted to roll again with another Conan movie. Um, also, I guess, after Red Sonia. And I remember that they were looking at two directors. They wanted either Guy Hamilton, who did some of the Bond movies like Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Goldfinger, and also uh, Live and Let Die. Uh, And they were also interested in um, uh, John Gillerman, who did uh, the King Kong remake in 1976 for the De Laurentiis uh, family. And Schwarzenegger was the holdup. They wanted to re-sign him, but he was like, you know what? There's this movie called Predator. I have good feelings about it.
1: Yes, and uh, my recollection from our Red Sonia episode is that uh, while Schwarzenegger may have felt some level of contractual obligation mm-hmm. to De Laurentiis, uh, he may not have had the same fond attachment to the property that you and I have, Cam.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I guess the idea was they wanted to roll, the, you know, on this Conan movie around, you know, shooting it in 1986. Like It's actually kind of surprising they waited until 1996 to shoot another Conan slash, in this case, Call movie.
1: Yeah, it's pretty hard to believe given that uh, both of the Conan movies, uh, and I can't recall Red Sonny. I think Red Sonny was probably a little bit lower. But both of the Conan movies, anyways, were uh, fairly moderate box office successes, I think, against their production budgets.
0: Definitely the first was like quite quite popular. The second one... I remember when we reviewed that episode, and check out that podcast, I think it's a really fun one. Um, but I remember going into The Destroyer with the false information in my head that that movie was a box office bust. But when we actually looked at the numbers, it did fine. Like, it wasn't as big as the first one, but it did just fine.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, Call the Conqueror comes out in 1997 with Kevin Sarbo, who's hot, of course, off Hercules The Legend Continues.
1: The Legendary Journeys. That's right. I'm going to Kung Fu Land right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> With David Carradine. <laughs> we were, uh, just just for you folks at home, we were talking about uh, various 1990s uh, made-for-TV movies and action series. And yeah. uh, so, Kung Fu The Legend Continues and Time Tracks featured prominently. So, uh, tell us about Tracks The Conqueror there. <laughs> well, are you talking about that other series,
0: Xena 2525? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cleopatra warrior princess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so Call comes out in 1997. I remember when it came out. It was like August of, of 97. It was right in those late, that late summer period. Now, back in the day, August was a dumping ground for movies. They did not release anything you cared about. You did not get a Guardians of the Galaxy or a Hobbs and Shaw opening for you. You got like, The Avengers. And I'm not talking about the Marvel Avengers. I'm talking about the Rafe Fiennes Uma Thurman Avengers.
1: Yeah, you didn't get your best movies in August. I don't know why. I guess they figured people were away on summer vacation. They were at camp or something.
0: That's exactly it. They thought families just went away for August. So they didn't want to release anything that cost money. You'd get the odd one, though. Like, Blade came out, I remember, in August. And I don't know that New Line had any grand hopes for Blade. And it was a real sleeper hit. But, yeah, I think maybe Mortal Kombat might have been August as well. Which, again, sleeper hit. You know, you did get stuff that we enjoyed growing up, but the studios never had faith in those movies. Don't lump me in here with the movies that you enjoy, Ken. Maybe one day we'll talk about Mortal Kombat in a different time, in a different podcast. Who knows? A different dimension, maybe. So, Call opens in that August. (laughs) <laughs> I think it closed by that August. <laughs> it did not do well. Now, Call, the budget numbers are tough to pin down. Seems to be about twenty million. Tony, I wanna know, what do you think Call the Conqueror did as a domestic total?
1: Well, uh I'd say it would probably do about twenty million, that would be my guess. you you are of course are the box office master here. Sure. It made six million dollars. Oh, that's a t- that's a tough weekend for
0: Call, isn't it? I don't know if they opened it like internationally because I can't find those numbers. They may not have. Back in the day, they didn't necessarily open internationally if they weren't you know happy with it.
1: Yeah, I don't know how big Hercules: The Legendary Journeys uh, was <laughs> in Bulgaria, for example. I don't know if it was worth an opening.
0: Now Call <laughs> landed at number 137 for the year. Oh, <laughs> right between. Now I'm curious if you remember this movie. It was right under. A movie called Most Wanted. Do you remember Most Wanted? The name rings a bell. Uh-huh. Who was in it? It was a Keenan Ivory Wayans action movie, co-starring John Voight.
1: You know what? I do remember that movie. I don't think I saw it, but I remember its release.
0: Yeah, I never saw it, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like the type of movie, though, you would have forgotten if you did see it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Least Wanted.
0: <laughs> um, And it was one spot above The Boxer, which was the Daniel Day-Lewis drama, that... I remember it came out with some, like, kind of Oscar buzz, like, will this be another Daniel Day-Lewis classic? And it really wasn't. I remember it really didn't go anywhere.
1: I remember The Boxer as being uh, probably one of the best date movies I've ever seen because you got some good boxing scenes, uh, some good uh, uh, romantic dialogue, and also some car explosions. (laughs) Well, maybe I should check out The Boxer. Well, it's an IRA movie. Uh, It's like an IRA romantic comedy sports movie. My favorite genre. (laughs) You gotta get out of the troubles, Danny. (laughs) That was my Emily Watson impression.
0: Right. Okay. And so the year that was 1997, we talked about it when we talked about another Arnold Schwarzenegger classic being... Uh, Was that
1: the uh, George Clooney uh, dramatic vehicle?
0: That was. Batman and Robin closed the year in the domestic totals at number 12. Uh, A little higher
1: than it deserves, to be totally honest.
0: True. And so we talked about the top 10 in that episode we did on Batman and Robin. But I'll just run through it quickly. At number one you had Titanic. Number two, you had Men in Black. Number three, Jurassic Park, The Lost World. It's actually kinda of surprising that was number three. I really would have thought that would have been, you know, a little higher.
1: I guess when you're going up against Titanic yeah. and, and Will Smith in the nineties.
0: True. Number four, you had Liar Liar. Number five, Air Force One. Number six, As Good As It Gets. Number seven, Good Will Hunting. Number eight, Star Wars Special Edition. Do you remember seeing those in theaters? Yeah. Those were a blast. And I remember being excited to see the CG footage at that time. Because it was like I'd never seen it before. And now every time I see those versions, I get angry.
1: <laughs> well, there
0: you go. Yeah. In number nine, you had My Best Friend's Wedding. And at number ten, the, I think, very underrated Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Some other notable releases this year that kind of... Maybe you're a little <laughs> tonally similar to A Call the Conqueror. Um, at number 34, you had Spawn, the uh, you know McFarlane comic adaptation. I
1: can't believe that that movie was that high. I remember that being an absolute box office disaster. No
0: kidding. Number 61, you had Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which also had some early 1990s CG effects.
1: Uh, not that there was any CG in Call the Conqueror. I guess there are in Spawn as well, aren't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a big year for CG. (laughs) At number
0: 113, you had Double Team, the Van Damme-Rodman movie that I'm a big fan
1: of. How is that possibly thematically related to Call (laughs) the Conqueror? I just wanted to talk about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And at number 178, you had the movie Steel, starring Shaquille O'Neal.
1: Which we've talked about before on this podcast, surprisingly. How much do you think Steel made? For Shaquille O'Neal? Uh, <laughs> no, at the domestic box
0: office, um, not a lot. One point seven million <laughs> uh, in limited release. I hope. I think that was wide release. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, ninety-seven. When you really look at it, not Hollywood's strongest year. <laughs> There's some good, really good stuff in there, but I mean. You know, not a year that's maybe aged as well as one might hope.
1: Well, the top ten aren't so bad. There's there's a lot in there that I like, yeah. uh, The bottom 190 are maybe a little weak. <laughs> so, I want to know, when you
0: went to see Call the Conqueror, or did you go and see Call the Conqueror in theaters? No, I
1: didn't. I remember seeing the ads for Call the Conqueror, and I was uh, a huge Hercules Legendary Journey fan. I don't know why, uh, but for whatever reason, that series really resonated with me. I think Hercules, The Legendary Journey is probably best remembered for the Xena off which became, of course, a huge cult phenomenon. I actually liked that show. I didn't like uh, Hercules. Anyways, even at the time, I was a big Robert E. Howard and Conan fan. I was uh, a, a big Hercules fan. I thought, man, this is a movie I want to see. It's got... Tia Carrera in it. I was. I think uh, this movie came out. I was uh, in my late teens and I was like, oh, I like Tia Carrera. She's pretty hot. And uh, I thought, what could go wrong? Of course I'll go see this in the theaters. Mm. And by the time I got out to see it, it was gone. And, <laughs> and that so, was on Saturday, right? Because <laughs> it opened on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Early Saturday morning, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't think I got to see this movie until later. And uh, what I used to do is I would pillage the video store you know the rent five movies for five days for five dollars of course and uh, i went through a big mage exploitation phase as i've referenced before on this podcast in my late teens early 20s where i would rent uh pretty much anything that had a sword and a chainmail bikini in it right and uh this movie made its way into one of those uh one of those weekly rentals and did you like it at the time you know, I can't remember.
0: So it really wasn't memorable to you at the time then? Like, it didn't jump out as one that... Because obviously it didn't do well at the box office, but at the time you weren't like, boy, this movie was unfairly ignored. Like,
1: it was kind of a blip. Yeah, no, to be honest, I can't, I can't recall, and it's something I've been struggling with leading up to this podcast, because we always talk about our first experiences with these movies. Uh, but I honestly cannot remember for the life of me what my original impression of this movie was. Interesting, interesting. Now... You are the guy I want to talk to. How
0: familiar were you with the character of Kull at this point in time?
1: I was a little bit. Uh, I mean, I'd read some of the Kull stories by Robert E. Howard, and um, I think I'd actually read what the, what the script was based on in some of the early Roy Thomas Savage sort of Conan comics.
0: Yeah, it was loosely based on Hour of the Dragon, which was the Conan novel that came out um, uh, shortly before Howard uh, passed on. It was released in two parts, I think, in Weird Tales magazine in 1935 and 1936.
1: Yeah, and like all Robert E. Howard stories, it uh, kind of got cut up and repackaged and retitled uh, a number of times throughout its uh, 60 or 70 year history before it finally made its way into Kevin Sorbo form.
0: Sure, and yeah, like because when they released it as a book in 1950, it was called Conan the Conqueror. And so, yeah, and the plot is very similar to this Cull film, but I don't really know anything about Cull. Like, was Cull a popular Howard character, or was he very much a minor one, as opposed to a Conan, who obviously was a huge icon?
1: Well, put it this way, Conan obviously has, uh, in recent times, been far more popular, and I think has always been more popular. Cull the Conqueror, my recollection of him is that he's very similar to Conan, and was used as... Uh, in many cases where Robert E. Howard where he couldn't sell a Conan story or couldn't sell a Call story, uh, they would get repackaged up as one or the other and sold to one of the pulp magazines at the time. If there is a distinguishing factor, I think it's Call is from, you know, Atlantis and Right. Might be a little bit more introspective. Is, he, is he a good swimmer? <laughs> Probably. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you say more introspective? Yeah, that's my recollection. It's been a long okay. time since I've read a read a call story.
0: In terms of the literary world, because obviously Conan becomes a huge icon in the movies, the comic books. Uh, there, I think there was an animated Conan TV show as well. Like he obviously has much more of a marketing push behind him in an attempt to kind of make him a multi-platform media character. But like, was Call in the literary world like really well known, or did he still take a backseat to Conan?
1: If anything, I think that's probably why Conan is so much better known than Call. Uh, Conan had the benefit of having a lot of other authors over the years take his helm uh, either on their own or finishing or editing Robert E. Howard's stories. He mm-hmm. um, had guys like Elsprague de Camp, who I think was a actually a consultant on both of the Conan movies and on Call the Conqueror, as well as guys like Robert Jordan, who wrote the the Wheel of Time series and and a just a litany of other pretty well known science fiction and fantasy authors have taken taken over Conan. Whereas Call, uh, I'm not as familiar with people who've taken over Call or who've written Call.
0: Interesting. And I guess one more question about the the lore of Call: Did he ever cross over with Conan in stories?
1: You know that I don't know. I'm okay. not sure. I, I don't think so. Something in the back of my mind says. That um, Tall and Conan were uh, set apart in time and world. Mm -hmm. But uh, don't quote me on that.
0: It seems like something they could do now. Like IDW could do like a comic series with these two together or something. Because now it's all about crossing over properties in comics. You'll see like IDW will put out like Star Trek meets Green Lantern Corps,
1: stuff like that. In fact, if the grapevine is to be believed, although I haven't verified it myself. Uh, apparently, uh, Marvel released some kind of comic this year in 2019 where, uh, Conan teamed up with Wolverine, uh, Venom and the Punisher in, in a comic that I can only imagine what, what it is like.
0: Is that not like the fever dream of like a 1990s 13 year old? (laughs) It,
1: It may very well be. I mean, in the early 1990s, I may... Have rushed out to buy that comic, but I'm sad to say that I haven't done so yet (laughs) in 2019. Okay.
0: Well, for my part, I must say, like, when Call the Conqueror came out, I had zero idea who this character was. And I remember the poster just said, Call rocks.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a a hilarious poster. (laughs) And I was like,
0: does he? And then the box office was like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, uh, I remember seeing commercials for it. I was not a Hercules fan, as I said, but I was very familiar with who Kevin Sorbo was. And from my young vantage point, it was like, oh, Kevin Sorbo's crossing into movies. That's semi-interesting, I guess. I still didn't go see it. Um, I remember I was actually up at my uh, family cabin up north. And so there was really only one movie theater and it wouldn't have played Call. So, I I did see it shortly after it was released on home video, though. And I remember just thinking it was terrible and <laughs> not giving it probably a second's worth of thought after I had dropped the video off at the video store slot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it was like, whatever, on to the next movie, could not care less. And I must say, I have not thought about it, really, in the last 22 years. <laughs> well... Well, the thing is, at the time, though, I didn't realize how kind of interesting this movie was in terms of its sort of weird evolution from being a Conan film. I didn't know any of this. It's it, got
1: kind of a bizarre Schwarzenegger
0: pedigree to it. Yeah, it does. And so let's just get into this movie as a potential Conan 3. But before that, we just watched the movie. I think we got to get this out of the way. Uh, what is it about, Tony?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, Cam. This is always my favorite part of the podcast. Right. Maybe not our listeners. Yeah. Uh, but this movie is about Atlantean Call the barbarian, or a barbarian. Maybe he's not the barbarian. That mantle seems to be held by Conan. Right. Who gains a crown by killing some king or other, who's on a bit of a rampage. Right. And uh, then goes ahead and marries an evil sorceress and...
0: <laughs> that old chestnut that
1: old chestnut and anyways the sorceress lo and behold what she want to do she wants to bring woe and destruction to the world and call he's gotta go uh, find some way to stop her along the way he's got to find a better girlfriend
0: and also you know get a little uh, merry band around him to like sorry I
1: thought that went without saying
0: oh, okay well <laughs> the old uh, Conan plot really.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, it really
0: does feel like this movie makes zero attempts to try to differentiate itself from being a Conan narrative. Like, it really does feel like they plugged in all the same parts. I mean, we can talk about the execution, which I think is a little different, but it does feel very much like it could have been a Conan movie.
1: Yeah, it's definitely what I would describe as a mid-budget throwback to the conan and post conan sword and sandal stuff they were just cranking out in the 1980s totally
0: and so what did you think of watching the movie this time did you enjoy it well put it this
1: way cam i won't say i enjoyed it as a piece of quality cinema sure but i I enjoyed sitting there and watching the movie with you i think this was the the most vocal we've been in a movie (laughs) in quite some time right uh and I mean I had a good time. I don't think it's the best movie ever made, but how about you? I mean <laughs> it's
0: pretty terrible, but it's it's watchably terrible, which I didn't feel the first time I saw it. Like the first time I saw it I remember just being bored. But this time maybe something about Bad 1990s blockbusters have somehow become nostalgic. Oh, come on. Don't describe this as a blockbuster. (laughs) Well, summer movie. When you see those wireframe CG characters and stuff and bad fire, there's a certain weird charm now that I would not have said existed in the 90s. I would have said, no one will ever find this funny. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no one will ever enjoy looking at this. But now I'm like... I'm kind of enjoying looking at this horror, <laughs> but yeah, like it's it's pretty clunky, and I think it's completely inferior to the Conan movies. Maybe even Red Sonia as
1: well. That's pretty debatable. No child actors in this. True, one.
0: that's very true. But I do think like there is a charm to the world building of those previous De La Rentes, Conan and Calidor movies that doesn't really exist here. This feels much more perfunctory.
1: Uh, it also feels like it was shot for TV in a lot of the, in a lot of ways. It definitely has a, a made-for-TV kind of film. It doesn't feel much different, really, than a Hercules movie of the week.
0: Yeah, like, it was directed by uh, John Nicolella, who, like, he was a TV guy. He was a producer of Miami Vice, as well as uh, Nash Bridges. With Don, He liked Don Johnson a lot, I guess. He was also a director of Miami Vice, as I said, Melrose Place, uh, Mantis. Do you remember that show? No. The Sam Raimi-produced uh, superhero show? No, I don't. Okay, well, Mantis was the bomb for, like, five episodes, and then it was canceled. And it was a bomb. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, again, this is a guy with TV credentials teaming up with a TV actor, not exactly making a movie that feels as cinematic as you see in even the lesser De Conan or Barbarian-esque movies.
1: Yeah, you know, and I dug in, actually, pretty deep into the different people who were involved in this production, mm-hmm. and... Almost all of them are working people like they're working in film but they're developing all... it <laughs> yeah, they, work, they work at the local drugstore um, no but they're all they're all working people a lot of them have pretty lengthy resumes but those resumes are uh, almost exclusively either TV movies or straight to video sequels
0: Yeah I think the interesting participant is really maybe the writer uh, Charles Edward Pogue Who, he began his career writing Psycho 3, which is, you know, it's an okay slasher-y kind of take on the uh, Norman Bates story. But he also uh, co-wrote The Fly, the David Cronenberg version. Right. Which is amazing. And he also wrote Dragonheart, which is a really fun movie from the 90s. That I don't know if it holds up. <laughs> I'm scared to rewatch it, but at the time, I really enjoyed it.
1: Didn't they make, like, a thousand sequels to that?
0: Well, he did write the straight-to-video sequel, Dragonheart, A New Beginning, uh, which uh, was not as popular, and I think that was, like, his last major credit. But, like, he did have some notable successes with major studio movies, and this definitely feels like kind of the beginning of the end for him, in terms of... Uh, Having, you know, (laughs) a movie that's opening on like over a thousand theaters or whatever.
1: Yeah, the funny thing is about the production of this film, too, is there's uh, you could do a Venn diagram of this movie with the other two Conan movies, uh, at least in terms of the people who are acting in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's there's no shortage of Schwarzenegger alumni in here, which is one of the reasons why we chose to actually do Call the Conqueror on a Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast. Totally. Yeah. For example, it's got uh, Pat Roach who played the wizard Tothamon slash gorilla creature. Yeah, manape. Yeah. In, <laughs> in is is oh sorry is that is that is that the gorilla creature's name?
0: Yeah, Man-Ape. Yeah, not to be confused with the Marvel character. Yeah.
1: Is that two words or is that? Uh... It is two words. <laughs> Very good. So uh, Pat Roach was in Conan the Destroyer. He was also in Red Sonja. Uh, Terry O'Neill is another guy who's a, a heavy who shows up in call the conqueror who was at least in conan the destroyer uh sven Thorsen, who we've talked a lot about on this podcast he shows up pretty prominently as uh king borna who kevin sorbo's call kills in order to take the crown in a scene that you and i were like howling with laughter at it was pretty uh pretty funny uh And, of course, uh, Tia Carrera, if you want to count her, she, of course, was in... Um, True Lies. True Lies.
0: Yeah. The career did not go up after True Lies when you're winding up in this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I, I mean, I guess she did that uh, Relic Hunter show for a little bit. Yeah. Um,
0: I really liked her
1: in True Lies. Like, I think she deserves better than this movie. Yeah, I. Th- and I don't think there's any more actors, at least, who... We're in those Conan movies, or at least in other Schwarzenegger movies. Right. Uh, if you want to start getting six Degrees, uh, Harvey Fierstein, who was in this, was also in uh, Mrs. Doubtfire with <laughs> with Robert Prosky, who played the projectionist in The Last Action Hero. Holy
0: smokes. We're going on a journey, folks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there, there's quite a few people here. And obviously, this was produced by Raphael De Laurentiis um, and the De Laurentiis family. Yeah. And uh, De, De Laurentiis Dynasty. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, uh, was pretty instrumental in getting the first two Conans made. Mm-hmm. Totally.
0: So yeah, like this does have a lot of the credentials, and I'm sure if you were to go through the stunt team and everything, you would spot a lot of people that popped up in, you know, Conan the Destroyer or what have you. Um, but uh, yeah, like this movie has the pedigree of sort of a Conan movie or at least a Red Sonya movie. But like for you, does it feel ten years removed? Like, it has the same feel of those movies.
1: No, not at all. Yeah. Right? Certainly not Conan the Barbarian. Uh, it's maybe a little bit closer to, like, Red Sonja or Conan the Destroyer. But I think that's because Conan the Destroyer was PG, I believe.
0: Right. Or, yeah.
1: I don't think they had PG-13 at the time. Right, yeah. And I think Red Sonja was the same.
0: I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But even even then, the all of those movies, to some degree, had a certain amount of cinematic heft to them uh when they worked when they didn't work uh they didn't work at all especially red Sonia and less so conan the destroyer but and you just don't get that with uh call the conqueror i think i think you hit the nail on the head it it definitely feels like uh a late 90s made for tv movie
0: like in conan the destroyer which no one holds up as an all-time great movie really you get that sequence with, like, the the like, the like crystal castle on the lake, and that looks majestic, and you go inside, and you have that amazing spiral staircase. Like, there's real visual wonders in that movie. Whereas, like, Kull, you really don't get anything. You get a lot of generic castles, um, some scenery. The, really, the one setting you get that does have that sort of mythic feel is this sort of icy cavern with <laughs> like a giant frozen uh, Burger King King head <laughs> in it that they have to go to to get the uh, the breath of Valka.
1: Yeah. Well, and what we should say, since it sounds like we're going to actually get into the movie here, uh, there's a good chance that those of you listening at home haven't seen this movie. So, I mean, what, what I recommend is it is a movie that's worth seeing. It's a movie that's worth watching, um, if only for the pedigree or to... Get a chuckle out of what they were doing in the 90s. But go and find it somewhere and watch it and then come back. Because uh, not that there's a lot to spoil. Right. But I'd hate to spoil it for you. So, I mean, yeah, like... I would
0: have liked, I think, if you're going to do kind of a Conan ripoff... I think where this one falls short is sort of the item quest myth kind of feel to it. Like, this thing... I think the biggest problem with this as being a prospective Conan 3 is that when you look even at the lesser ones, you're going to these kind of wondrous locations. And yeah, they're done on the cheap. Yeah, maybe they do just have like a skeleton in the background, but it still kind of conjures up a certain, you know, uh, like fantasy-like feel. Whereas this one doesn't have any of that. Like it feels very stripped down in terms of its imagery.
1: Yeah, it does. And where it does have that imagery, it feels a little bit uh, imitative, if that's... Uh, The right word. Yeah. Um, Like you just think about the opening of this movie. It starts off with what we're going to see a lot of in this movie, which is a blanket of CG fire. (laughs) And with the words that have probably started off more sword and sorcery or sword and sandal movies than I care to count. Yeah. At the dawn of time. Right. And you're like, okay, this is a good opening. But unfortunately, that line, rather than being delivered by... Someone with a little bit of vocal heft.
0: Like Lawrence Olivier or something.
1: Yeah, or dig up Charlton Heston, who I think was probably... Sure. <laughs> ...doing that sort of thing around this time. Or if you want to go cheaper, John Rhys-Davies. Sure, absolutely. Instead, you've got it narrated by none other than the great... Kevin Sorbo. Yeah, and rather than being this epic intro, which is what you would hope for in an epic movie... Yeah. You get a CG fire... And the intro that you might kind of hear at the beginning of uh, an episode of Hercules.
0: I mean, the music in this is insane. I love it. It's I, I like co- I
1: couldn't stand it.
0: <laughs> it's Joel Goldsmith, not to be confused with Jerry, who I mean, this movie has the most like generic fantasy kind of score, the like instrumental score, orchestral score, accompanied by like 1997 heavy metal guitars
1: and. I'm assuming the reason, the reason you're jumping from the intro into the score yeah. is because that's what it opens with.
0: Totally. It, yes.
1: It's got a really strange blend, too, because um, it's only in the battle scenes that they just play like the, the cheesiest guitar, wankery, <laughs> late 90s metal. That's a
0: chugging guitar. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but then, when they're not in battle, it's a lot of like choral music, yeah, a lot of orchestral stuff where they're trying to, um, harken back to uh, like the score of Conan.
0: Sure, it also feels a little bit like Deluca's score for Army of Darkness sometimes too, which was kind of parodying like movies like Clash of the Titans or uh, Jason and the Argonauts.
1: Yeah. Uh. Well, I'm 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 interested that you liked that score. I found that. I sweet. mean, here's the
0: thing. Let me <laughs> let me be specific. It's a terrible score. It's just that its terribleness is awesome.
1: (laughs) It's so inappropriate. But that's
0: what makes (laughs) it glorious. Every time the heavy metal guitars came on, I was like, you know what? We've often talked about how Conan imagery belongs on the side of a van. This van is playing heavy metal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but not this heavy metal.
0: (laughs) This is kind of like anthrax, like knockoff anthrax
1: yeah, a little bit and it's um, it's so jarring like uh, throughout the movie and anytime they're in a battle scene and normally I can kind of take or leave a score but I, I, I kept thinking to myself that this movie would be quite a bit better mm-hmm. if they had just stuck with uh, a, an epic fantasy score of some kind like yeah. it's really distracting. it really takes a lot away from the movies when it comes in, I think.
0: but did this movie ever strive to be an epic? Like, even the, the lesser uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger barbarian films did.
1: I think if it had had a different score in it... Yeah. I, I think that you might be... I mean, we might still have issues with this movie, but I think we might be saying this movie was striving to be epic. I don't know, because I feel like it sort of has this epic feel in that
0: opening narration where they're setting up, you know, this fire that never stops burning, and this kind of, you know, mythic mumbo-jumbo that we see in these types of movies. But then, like, once that score kicks in... It kind of is almost adjusting the tone to be like, this is a 1990s action movie. And that's kind of what it feels like throughout. Like, it it does feel much more of that 90s feel. It doesn't have, like, that sense of, like, we're trying to go for a timeless sort of fantasy kind of mode.
1: So I think the shorthand for that is maybe mailed in? I mean, probably. (laughs) I mean,
0: I'm not saying it's done with any sort of artistry. (laughs) I just think they were like, let's just make a movie that 13-year-olds will think is cool. I tend to think that's what was the uh, attitude here. Sure. But I mean, like, yeah. So, like, to me, like, the movie starts in a way where it's almost presuming that it is a Conan movie. Because Call shows up with no setup whatsoever. No You're, backstory at no all. No backstory. I have no idea who this guy is. They're assuming that me in the audience knows who Call is, which I do not. And, uh, and <laughs> we just have him facing off. ...against this guy, uh, Thomas Ian Griffith plays him, the General Talagero, who's one of the heavies of the movie. And they have this blindfolded fire sword fight, which I know that sounds like kind of a random jumble of words... ...but it's very accurate to what happens. And uh, the whole time, I feel like I'm supposed to know who Call is, but had this been a Conan movie, it would have made a lot more sense.
1: Yeah, the, fir- the first maybe 15, 20 minutes of this movie... Are quite confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times, the movies that we watch for this podcast, one of the comments we've made before is they might have, they might fall apart in the third act or like right. a weak third act. Um, this movie is, I think, the first one we've watched for this podcast where uh, the first act I think was by far the weakest. Yeah, uh, where, like you say, they introduce this character as kind of a middling axe fighter. And not a particularly good sword fighter. Yeah, he's not yeah.
0: very good at all.
1: Yeah, and then he he's in a battle, but it's not really clear if he's just why he's in a battle or, or why General Taligero is fighting him. And then there's a scene where some guard comes in and says, oh, the king is killing all of his heirs. And so all the guardsmen uh, and General Taligero go back to the castle and are trying to get him to stop. Yeah. And Cole just shows up there. It's not really... And kills the king. And kills the king with everyone watching.
0: And you had the reaction of, I didn't realize Call was with them. And I had the same response. I was like, I, I didn't either.
1: And along the way, Call keeps giving this kind of bizarre self-expository dialogue. Yeah. Right, where he'll say, uh, I, I had five years as a slave on a galley, or I, I spent three years as a pirate on the waters
0: of the sea. But doesn't that feel so similar to the Conan backstory? Like being on the wheel, you know, for those many years, getting whipped on the wheel?
1: Well, I think just the Conan story in general, where uh, the Conan character, that's what he does, is he travels from land to land in a variety of roguish professions. Right. And you just kind of accept that wherever you pick up the Conan story is going to be at some point in this serialized journey mm-hmm. whereas with call you don't know who he is right no one knows who call is <laughs> like you can't even say like well hey guys you know
0: he was prominently featured in a 1980s comic book series it's like no he wasn't <laughs> we don't know who he is
1: <laughs> yeah so i mean call very quickly uh, comes in kills the king the svenoli thorson quite humorously yeah. picks up the crown while the Two remaining uh, distant heirs to the throne are arguing about who gets the crown, yeah. and the king hands it to Call and says, "Call, you are the king now." Right. And the court eunuch says, "Well, by the ancient laws, Call is now the king." Right. And we go from there. He shows Call kind of making his way through the court, uh, and learning what it's like to be a king and meet women, I guess. <laughs>
0: That was kind of weird. Yeah, <laughs> he
1: has like a harem, of course, and
0: among them is uh, Zarita, uh, played by Karina Lombard, who's the female lead of the of the of the movie. She's a, like a fortune teller who uses round cards that Tony referred to as coasters.
1: Yeah, they're tarot cards that look like coasters out of a, <laughs> a hit bar of some kind.
0: Do you think at the time they put those out as like promotional materials like coasters for the film critics?
1: <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> there's no way they were screening this for critics. <laughs> but I mean like... <laughs> and these these first like 20 minutes, so there's just so many characters that are introduced with so many different roles you, and you don't really know who Call is. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to figure out what's going on there is a lot of cg fire just like pillars of it sure um like they must have stacked like four green screens on top of each other to get this much cg fire in a movie definitely i mean
0: when you look at conan the destroyer they're throwing all this crazy stuff in all these new characters like the grace jones character but because we know conan we're along for the journey he's our like kind of you know our anchor So we can experience the oddness of the world, whereas we don't have that with Call. We spend the whole time going like, wait, what's going on? Who's
1: this guy? Well, one of the problems, I think, with this movie and why that doesn't work here is you look at, say, Conan the Destroyer. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to distinguish, say, um, Grace Jones and Mako.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Right. Like these are supporting characters played by character actors who have really distinct roles Mm -hmm. Uh, here they don't even have distinct wigs
0: (laughs) well they are kind of distinct (laughs) they're (laughs) horrendous (laughs) everyone has the worst wigs ever in this movie
1: (laughs) yeah but the characters all kind of blend together yeah at at court well they don't
0: have the big like colorful personalities well with the exception of you know the odd one like harvey firestein has a pirate named juba but i mean like for the most part they're kind of generic Whereas, like, when I think of, like, Sandel Bergman in the original Conan as Valeria, like, she is iconic and really memorable. Versus Karina Lombard in this one, like, Zarita is, you know, she I guess she's got the fortune teller gimmick, but there's no real charisma off the performance.
1: Yeah, and along the way, I mean, we get Tia Carrera, who is resurrected from a husk of a corpse through some kind of blood-fire sacrifice to become, of course, the beautiful Tia Carrera evil... Sorceress, yeah. How many times have we seen, basically, this scene in a fantasy movie where sure. there's a, a an ancient husk and with you know the appropriate goat's head or virgin or fire or blood drop or hero's ring or God knows what.
0: And usually in the trailer for said movie, it'll say an ancient evil is awakened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, as we you know said earlier on. This movie was based on the Conan story uh, "Hour of the Dragon," and in that story, the ancient sorcerer being awakened is called Zaltotan. Uh <laughs> Now, uh, forgive my pronunciation;
1: that may not be correct. Yeah, apologies to all the Hyborians out there.
0: Yeah, we're just gonna run it. But it was a male sorcerer being awakened. But it's very similar. Conan is the king at this point. The sorcerer is awakened, and you know, runs him out of the kingdom. And Conan is aided by a slave girl named Zenobia. Who he makes his queen at the end, which is very similar to the character of Zarita, who's the fortune teller. Like, you can see that while it's not a direct, direct adaptation, they've definitely taken the framework and the loose characters and plugged them into the slots.
1: Yeah, although to be fair, it is not the most original tapestry to ever come off the loom. (laughs) Maybe not,
0: maybe not.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, what I want to get to is, I mean, along the ways, uh, he very puzzlingly gets married to this. Uh, sorceress Akivasha. There's a <laughs> pretty hilarious, obvious body double in puffy
0: wigs scene. Yeah. <laughs> Their love scene is something else, yeah. Very 90s.
1: Yeah, and then finally, finally he uh, gets out of this castle and, t- and gets out of this crown and actually goes off on an adventure. And it's about 45 minutes
0: in. Like, it is the halfway point in the movie before he goes on an adventure. And it's weird because, like... If you tell me like Schwarzenegger is playing Conan in this, you know, this role for the first 45 minutes, I think there would be a little more like charisma, a little more magnetism. I think there'd be more memorable dialogue exchanges. Kevin Sorbo, I mean, there's a reason he didn't really become a, like a motion picture actor. Like he doesn't have the delivery. His lines just feel kind of tossed off and weightless. Like he doesn't have the ability to really ground this crazy world.
1: Really? Uh, what about, uh, your highness, your bride is over 3,000 years old. She said she was 19. That's a pretty good Kevin Sorbo impression there, Cam. Thank you. Yeah,
0: like, everything's very flat. Like, he has these kind of tossed-off comedic lines, but it's not like you and I laughed at any of them.
1: <laughs> uh, that was probably the best of the bunch. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of a uh, an awkward and weird camel urination scene when they're smuggling him out of the uh, castle. Isn't that not the ultimate
0: underlined statement on how important this movie is. Arnold Schwarzenegger punches out a camel in Conan the Barbarian, whereas he gets peed on by a camel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which they then use as a plot device for like the next 10 minutes where uh, people keep seeing how bad it smells. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, I'm curious because uh, it's about this point he teams up with a priest named Ascalante, played by Lightfoot. Now, I am curious, if this character had been in a Conan 3, do you think that would have been maybe Mako? I gotta believe so. You think so? Like, because Mako appears in both the Conan movies, it seems to me like, even though
1: they do switch up the team every time, he
0: was a consistent, they probably would have kept him around, right? You'd
1: think so. Um, But, I mean, there's no shortage of uh, wayward priests and errant magicians in the Conan universe. Sure. What did you think of this
0: Ascalante character?
1: disposable so, he was
0: super disposable
1: uh, i mean and ultimately he was disposed of in a very chilling manner
0: <laughs> the icy hand of death yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah like that's the problem for me is like when you look at conan the destroyer every supporting character even if you hate them is incredibly memorable <laughs> like yeah. they are big personalities
1: that's right and so we, we hit this point where we finally about halfway through this movie Uh, We've got the team together, we've got Escalante, we've got uh, Zarita, and ultimately we get uh, the pirate Juba. Right. And off they go, finally on an adventure, then. They're trying to get to uh, the creatively named Ice Island. Right.
0: (laughs) Yes, to find the breath of Zalka.
1: That's right, which apparently is the only thing that can... Put out the fire of Akivasha and save the world from destruction.
0: In the Conan novel, it was uh, the Heart of Araman they were after at this point.
1: Well, thanks for letting me know. You are welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, this is the part that would, I think, frame an interesting Conan movie, which is the search for this, uh, for this uh, breath of Valka. What did you think of the actual quest element here?
1: I mean, it was just a MacGuffin, pretty much. Yeah. Right. Um, I, mean, I think this quest would have been a lot more effective if it wasn't the only one. Right. Right? Like... Did, That's
0: the thing. There's so many quests. There's like three or four of them in Destroyer. Like, why is there only one in this movie?
1: Did I mean, did we really need uh, that first half an hour of how Cole became the king and all that expository dialogue? Yeah. Couldn't we just start with uh, Cole wearing a heavy crown upon his brow? Right. Maybe giving a little bit of exposition... Finding some excuse to get out of the castle with Akivasha there and having to save the day. Mm-hmm. And away you go on a, on a sword and sorcery epic. I mean, maybe it was cheaper to not go on any adventures, but... Um, Probably was. I mean, that's pretty much what this movie is, is introduce a bunch of characters, go to the Ice Island and come back. Yeah, what did you think of the Ice Island? It looked like the ice cave in a low-budget to
0: mid-budget fantasy movie. It reminded me of an ice cave in like an episode of Star Trek. Yeah, exactly. There's actually, in uh, Season 4 of Enterprise, they go to the Andorian Ice Caves, and they look very similar to this.
1: Yeah, it had, like I say, like like so much in this movie, it had a very made-for-TV look. Mm-hmm. You already mentioned the giant, uh, plaster-looking Burger King head that, I guess, holds the, uh, the breath, breath of yeah. Uh Wasn't really clear to me how physics worked in this cave. There was a <laughs> lot of very questionable escape moves and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I mean... It was serviceable in the context of the movie, but I don't know if serviceable is really the glowing review that you want out of your ice cave if you're a set designer.
0: I mean, here's the thing: um, there is a point though where uh, Zarita realizes that only a woman can receive the power of this uh, this frozen king head, and strips off <laughs> her clothes and walks through this you know this area that would freeze any man. She's walking through, basically just topless, and I'm like, I mean, this is 80s fantasy right here. This is bizarre.
1: Yeah, although I will say, if you weren't listening to us before and you haven't rushed out to go see this movie, don't do it on that account. This is a PG-13 film. True.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I'm looking at this scene and I'm like, I mean, this is 80s fantasy writ large, but unfortunately on a kind of a crappy budget.
1: Yeah, and there was a whole bunch of that. I mean, there's this big ice head when they're on the pirate ship a little earlier on in the movie. There's... I guess they're fishing, but there's a big fake-looking dragon head yeah. that, that vomits up fish. I and- had a
0: problem with that actually, because you know I referenced earlier, like the giant skeleton in uh, I think it's is it Destroyer or is it Red Sonya? I don't remember. It's in the background, and it like has this real sense of like grandeur in this world. I was hoping that this fish would kind of represent that in this world, but the fact they play it for like a cheap puking gag removes all the majesty of it.
1: Yeah, plus it looked like a parade float. <laughs>
0: I would totally hire Harvey Firestein as my parade master. He would throw one hell of a parade.
1: Yeah, it's not really clear what kind of fishing boat this is. Like, they pull up big dragon heads that are full of fish and vomit. It's But I hear what you're saying. There's not a lot of majesty here. Yeah. Um... Like, you think back to what they would do in Conan. There would be, like, some wide-angle shots of the ship. Mm-hmm. There'd be a little bit of world-building. Like, they, they might have some sea dragons off in the distance that they never even interact with. Right, yeah. But they don't do that here. Yeah, like, I, I would have liked a little more of that. Like, the thing about Call is, the, the way that Kevin Sorbo
0: plays it, he needs to constantly kind of reference the absurdity. Like, he's often making these kind of side comments that are really aimed to the audience. Which I think actually drains the movie of that sort of mythic feel. Like, you want to sense that your lead character believes in the world he's in. And he doesn't have that. Like, the thing is, Hercules, um, the the TV show, was very tongue-in-cheek. And I feel like they're going a little too tongue-in-cheek here. Whereas, like, the previous Conan movies really did keep that... You know, they they took it seriously. Like, there was a certain earnestness to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't want
0: something that's too serious. Not too serious. Like, it is cartoonish in, say, Conan the Destroyer, but the characters don't feel like they are undercutting the moments.
1: Yeah, and I think even without opening their mouths, they undercut the heft of this film just with their wardrobes. <laughs> True. <through. laughs> yeah, no kidding.
0: Call has this, like, 80s rocker, like, I guess it's supposed to be like chainmail, but it does not look like chainmail. No, it looks
1: like sequins. <laughs> it's like
0: something like, you know, Steven Tyler would have worn on stage in the 1980s.
1: Or there's one point where Zarita uh, is on the ship. They've been captured by Juba, who has taken a, <laughs> oh, a turn God. for the worse. And she comes out wearing the most insane leopard print sun hat I've ever seen. It's, I mean, I wish I had one. It's It's spectacular.
0: And my favorite part is that when she, like, you know, spits at Juba or whatever. He
1: rips the hat off of her and is like, "You don't deserve to wear this hat."
0: <laughs> it was incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, while we're on that, while we're on that subject, I will say Juba was probably one of my favorite parts of this totally. movie. Harvey Fierstein did a great job. He was pretty funny, and he was the kind of character that this movie needed more of. He was the kind of character that was memorable. And the kind of, uh, with the kind of character actor that you'd see in one of these Conan movies. Totally.
0: And the thing was, he was a hilarious, bizarre, campy character. But he never, like, ridiculed the story or the world around him. Like, it's like he was absurd on his own. Which is what you get from those Conan movies. Where, like, Grace Jones is absurd in that movie. But she's not commenting on the world. Whereas, like, Call is commenting on the world. And, like, to me, that doesn't work. Whereas, like, Juba... He just exists in this bizarre world, and because he's so heightened, the world around him feels even more heightened. Mm -hmm. That's what I like in these movies, is for, like, everything to feel big. You know what I mean? Even though they don't necessarily have big budgets. But they do have big columns of CG fire. Yes, there are some of those. And you know what? Tia Carrera spends a lot of time standing in front of one, and I want to give her points, because... I don't think this is going to go on the highlight reel of Tia Carrere's career when all is said and done. But I do think she brings a lot to uh, Akivasha in that she plays it big. Yeah, and she plays it straight. Totally, totally. Like, she is owning this role. She is playing this demon woman sort of sorceress. Um, She's torturing her underlings around her with glee and wild abandon. And, like, I had fun watching her because... If you're gonna be in one of these movies, there's nothing worse than when the actor comes in and just slums it, and you get bored watching them.
1: Although I will say there were a few scenes with her where she's just uh, playing it big, chewing scenery, yeah, and and she's delivering these lines like "You will never conquer me," <laughs> you know, like that that kind of thing. And I I, <laughs> I had this thought as I was watching her, and I was thinking. I wonder if as she's delivering these lines, if there's some part of her in the back of her head that's just like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I just came off True Lies and Wayne's World. (laughs) (laughs) And Wayne's World, too. That's right. So anyways, just to kind of move the plot along here, uh, General Taligaro locks Cullen in in this ice cave with this big, uh, unconvincing Burger King head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and absconds with uh, Zarita, who now has the breath of Valka inside of her. Her dear brother, Ascalante, is killed in the ensuing ruckus. The audience doesn't care. The audience doesn't care at all. Uh, And Cull, in a fit of genius, really, uh, takes his axe, or an axe, and chops open this big styrofoam head, a bunch of water sprays out, and somehow... That saves the day and he's able to swim through solid rock. Who knows? And he wins a lifetime supply of Whoppers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> he gets on a ship that's been shipwrecked and makes his way back to town just in time to keep Sarita from being killed.
0: Right. Now, we get the big face-off with Akibasha, which, when you look at the Conan movies, they always end with some sort of battle with a big creature. You have, like, the James Earl Jones snake creature in Conan... Uh, You also have the, like, horned demon in Conan the Destroyer, uh, played by, uh, was that, um, um... Andre the Giant. Yeah, Andre the Giant. Thank you. And here we definitely do get a monster, but
1: Tony, how would you describe this monster? Well, you know when you leave your computer on too long? Yes. Without using it? Right. And the screen goes off? Yes. And a bunch of images come on the screen in order to save the screen? Like flying toasters? <laughs> no, no flying toasters. Uh, but that's kind of what it looked like. It was it, a very screensaver-like, at least in terms of the fire. I actually think the the actual creature was primarily practical effects. In part,
0: when it was like the close-ups and interacting with Kevin Sorbo, yes, it was. But then there was other parts where it's like dissolving or when it first kind of appears in the fire where it was CG.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to overstate just how bad the CG is in this movie. Like, yeah, it's actually amazing that they relied on it that much. Like, was it really that much cheaper in 1997 to use a pillar of CG fire instead of just a propane tank?
0: They used to do things like that, though, around this time. This very year, you have Spawn coming out, which has the really crappy-looking CG Violator. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also in CG Fire because it's in Hell. Um, in Mortal Kombat Annihilation, you've got the big, like, uh, animality stuff that looks terrible. Um, yeah, like, 97 was a big year for bad CG monsters.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird. But, I mean, anyways... Um... I don't know if it's still Tia Carrera or if it's just a creature at this point. It's they, a creature. There's some pretty interesting uh, CG morphing yeah. scenes in there.
0: Uh, my favorite part was actually watching Tia Carrera in like a column of fire that looks terrible, doing like cartwheels and stuff like that, and spinning around into the air like a <laughs> like a Cirque du Soleil performer. Yeah, that was my favorite was, image, maybe, of the entire movie.
1: It was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, but Call has now taken the breath of Valka. Out of Zarita, mm-hmm. in an interesting plot twist, and goes to his current bride, Akivasha, who's now uh, a horribly deformed beast in a pillar of CG fire, right? And gives her a kiss. Yes,
0: he kisses a giant, uh, drooling, practical monster head. And that's the end of uh, old uh, Akibasha.
1: Yeah, see you later. We should mention that along the way, the two, the Queen's two cronies, Ducalon and Eneros, die in, I think, pretty probably two of the best death scenes in this movie. Sure, one, yeah. One of them gets thrown out of a window and explodes on the way down
0: yeah it's like a dummy uh, being thrown out a window crashing uh, down a cliff on fire it's pretty great
1: uh the other one shoots a snake out of a staff at call who or i should say a half snake half dagger yeah who catches it and throws it back and it uh hooks onto his face
0: yeah and then he goes into the column of fire and burns up yeah and then of course general talagero shows up and i thought this was a little disappointing because like he gets stabbed Then he gets up again, and then Cull swings an axe at him, and he drops dead. And it's like, okay, whatever.
1: Yeah, it wasn't much of a fight, especially considering that uh, in the very opening scene of the movie, they established that General Talagero was actually a far better swordsman than
0: Cull was. Now I have a question for you. Let's just assume this is a Conan movie. I don't know that necessarily if they'd made this in 1987, uh, Akibasha would have been the villain, like it would have had a female villain because they may have gone closer to the Conan book where it is a male sorcerer. We don't know, but let's just assume it is a female one. There is no way that I feel like Conan 3 ends with him, like, kissing the sorceress to kill her. Like, I feel like this is more of a Kevin Sorbo comedic moment because he's definitely playing it for a little more comedy because he's, like, spitting out the drool and whatever. I don't think Conan would do this, do you?
1: I don't think so. I think Conan Conan's answer to things is, I think, a little bit more in steel than in love <laughs> yeah or well, at least when it comes to uh soul-sucking demons
0: yeah like i definitely felt like this was much more of that hercules type feel like it didn't feel like this is what would have resulted with a schwarzenegger movie
1: yeah no i'd agree with that for yeah. sure.
0: and i think you would have gotten a better fight with uh, talagaro
1: yeah for sure and for that matter talagaro um you know no knock against thomas ian griffith but uh we could have had a better a better second baddie there
0: well if you have arnold playing conan in this film uh, they are not putting that guy up against him. Like, you're going to get, like, a Wilt Chamberlain, like, someone who's big and imposing, versus, like, this guy who... He's fine. Like, Thomas Ian Griffith has been in a few things I've seen. He was the uh, ponytailed karate dude in The Karate Kid 3. Right. He was the uh, lead vampire in uh, John Carpenter's Vampires. So, you know, he's done some stuff. But he's not particularly intimidating here. He reminded me, actually... Of a mashup of Alan Rickman's Sheriff of Nottingham in the uh, <laughs> 1991 or 2, I think it's a 1991 Robin Hood movie. Yep. And the winner of Survivor uh, Thailand, Brian Heidek, who was a car salesman. If you Google that guy's photo, it looks exactly like Thomas Ian Griffith in this movie. Well, I'm not going to Google this photo. Fair enough. And I don't recommend anyone at
1: home Google it either.
0: (laughs) But I mean, like, yeah, like, that's what this guy looks like, bang on. This guy also bears a little bit of a resemblance to uh, uh, Henry the Red in um, Army of Darkness.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, whatever he resembles, he does not resemble a particularly intimidating foe. No. For uh, a hero like Cull or Conan. But do you think he is a good match for Kevin Sorbo? No. Oh, really? No, I don't. I think that this movie could have done with a little bit more, a uh, little bit more heaviness. In fact, uh, I thought of, of like the bad guys in this movie. Mm-hmm. I thought probably Sven ole Thorsen was even for the brief time that he was on screen was probably one of the mo- more interesting actual fight scenes.
0: Yeah. No, I would agree with that. Like, I don't think the action in this movie is actually very good. No, it's not very well shot or
1: choreographed. Or...
0: There's a lot of choreography where. It'll show like a like a big you know wide shot of all these people fighting, and it does not look like they're going at full speed.
1: <laughs> no, they this they, they do the kind of classic uh, hold your arm out and wiggle your sword back and forth.
0: Yeah, yeah, like there's a choreographed sword fight between Cull um, and Talagaro where they're standing in a lake blindfolded, and it's not a particularly memorable sword fight. <laughs> no, it's about on par with the Obi Wan Darth Vader lightsaber battle in the first Star Wars. <laughs> Oh, I love that battle. <laughs> I mean, it serves its dramatic purpose, but it's not exactly an example of grand choreography. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, like the action in this movie is always kind of forgettable. So like, uh, I would have liked that the myth stuff felt bigger and maybe more a little colorful because that would have made up for the crappy action. To me, like the only thing that makes the action more fun is the terrible score with the like heavy metal guitars. Like to me, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I get it. Like, I get what they're going for. So, I can kind of enjoy it on that level. But it's not the action of the Conan films.
1: No, no, not at all.
0: So, overall, like, do you feel like this was a real missed opportunity to be a Conan film?
1: Yeah, I do, Cam. Although, probably more accurately, I think it was a little little bit of a missed opportunity to be a good fantasy film. Because I think around 1997, the, I always called them like the Mage Sploitation Era. Right. um, like, those fantasy films, they kind of died out maybe around 1986, 87. Yeah. They stopped making them in the same volume that they did. I think uh,
0: was Willow maybe the last big one. I think that's 1988.
1: Yeah, right. probably right around there. Um, yeah. I mean, they were still making them, of course, but just not, not the way they did in the 80s. And so this was a little bit of an opportunity to have a movie with a bigger budget, a bit of a better cast, come out and bring that back to life, and... It hit in a few places, but by and large, I think it was kind of a miss.
0: Like, it's very unremarkable. Like, there's nothing about it you would be like, guys, you have got to see Call the Conquer. People don't like this movie, but trust me, it's doing things you haven't seen before. It's not that movie.
1: <laughs> no, it's not. Everything in it you've seen before. Yeah, it's very um, boilerplate. And better. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. I mean, like, I would have loved to have seen a third Conan. Who knows, maybe we'll get one. I know Schwarzenegger still keeps teasing it. I think if maybe Terminator Dark Fate is like a worldwide phenomenon, maybe Arnold can get it going. But uh, at the moment, it seems
1: unlikely. Yeah, although, um, I mean, at some point on this podcast, we'll have to do the Jason Momoa Conan.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, uh, yeah.
1: Which I think was probably a little bit truer to the Conan character, although I don't know if it totally worked.
0: Right. Um, Now, with this film, though, and the character of Kull, do you feel like Cull is a character that warrants revisiting or is he a character that we can kind of just go like, eh, he's fine. I'll put
1: it this way. I think probably the call property has got to be cheaper than the Conan property. True. Although I have serious doubts that a call movie would be made these days with any significant mm-hmm. budget. I mean, those just aren't the types of movies that are being made these days. Right. We, and we've talked about that in previous episodes. We're getting a lot of franchises and a lot of animation, a lot of superhero movies. Not a lot of independent property, uh, standalone barbarian movies.
0: What about a TV series? Could call work there? Is that more his arena maybe? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I don't know if you
1: recall, but... short Re- Recall? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you recall. Good one. Uh... That in 1997 and 1998, so shortly, I think shortly after this movie, or maybe contemporaneous with it, there was a Conan TV series, a live-action yep, Conan I do series. Remember. It was only on for one season. Uh, it wasn't particularly good, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, I still liked it. I mean, if these kind of shows can work uh, with Conan or Hercules, or if you remember, maybe Sinbad... Sure. Uh, all of these kinds of N- not shows... to
0: talk about Sinbad the comedian, Sinbad it... the actual mythic character.
1: Yeah, no, I don't want to go back to Jingle All the Way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, if, so if, if these kinds of shows can work, I don't know why a Call the Conqueror or, for that matter, another Conan the Barbarian series couldn't work.
0: Yeah, I think though if they're gonna do another Call film or TV series, they've gotta establish why this character is different than Conan. Like they do a terrible job of that here. And like, I feel like for the average person, it's like, what, is this Conan or yeah. is this not?" It's just Conan without the name recognition. Yeah, exactly. And despite what this, the uh, you know the filmmakers say, is Call rocks in the eyes of the audience. He doesn't.
1: <laughs> okay. Even with even with that heavy metal music glaring.
0: <laughs> okay, so I think that wraps us up with Call the Conqueror, aka Conan Three. What could have been, Tony. What are we doing next time?
1: Well, next time, Cam, we're going to be watching a movie about somebody unconquerable, Mm. somebody making a finger on the side of my nose, Last Stand, Mm. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's 2013 full-fledged starring comeback in The Last Stand. I'm really
0: interested to revisit that one. We talked about Escape
1: Plan recently, and that was a really
0: interesting late career Arnold movie, so I'm curious to see how this one holds up.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's been, actually hasn't been that long since I've seen The Last Stand, but I'm looking forward to watching it again.
0: Cool. And of course, you can reach us with any comments, suggestions uh, at arneganpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at arneganpod. Um, We would totally appreciate it if you left any reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Tony, how do they get a hold of you? You can find me, Tony G. Tony, like the name g like the letter at arnie also feel free to download us direct from our source www.arniegetton.com
0: of course and you can find me on twitter at cam in Valka smith okay so we'll be back with the last stand